damn Yankees. High enough. You know? I really, really fucking hate this song. And that's actually one of the reasons why I chose it, because a lot of the songs that I've played in this 1991 series that I've done up to now, these are mostly songs that I either like or, at the very minimum, I can tolerate, you know? High Enough is different in that it's probably the single worst song released by any band since Starship's We Built This City. And when you think about just how high Starship set the bar when it comes to a shitty song, the fact that High Enough is as bad as that, if not worse, well, that kind of says something, doesn't it? I don't know how, but I... Somehow, I was able to mostly avoid this song when it was big on the radio and all that. You know, this wasn't a song that constantly followed me around. Like, some of the other songs that I've played in this 1991 mega-series I've gone through... Guys, I'm not kidding. Some of these songs were nigh inescapable in 1991. But, honestly, I don't really remember hearing High Enough really all that often. And I choose to see that as the good lord basically showing me a little bit of mercy you know that's how i choose to view it because guys this song i mean look i apologize to anybody who really enjoys this song like maybe this is your favorite song and right now you're really pissed off at me for saying all this but guys i i, I can't help it this song just fucking sucks all right there's no redeeming value to it, it has nothing to recommend it and that's really all there is to say about it. So, hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I've been doing lately is working my way through a mega-series that's all about January 1991, or perhaps more specifically, comic books bearing the cover date January of 1991. Now, you might ask yourself, if you haven't listened to any of the previous episodes I've done on this subject, you might ask yourself, but Magnus, but Magnus, what's so special about January 1991? Well, I'll tell you. Basically, a lot of people talk a lot of smack about 1990s comics, and in fact, to say that something is 90s, that's a little bit of a, that's a little bit of a smear in a lot of cases. That's kind of an insult, you know? And nine times out of ten, when people talk about some idea or concept or character or just fucking whatever being 90s, in the majority of cases, what they're actually talking about is something from the early 90s. And so as a result, I think that that kind of smack talk has kind of put a stink on 1990s comics in ways that I just don't think are appropriate. So the purpose of this mega series is basically an attempt to kind of shine a light on what it was that people were really reading back in 1991. Because I don't know about any of the rest of you, but I happen to rather enjoy comics in 1991. And there's a very good chance that when somebody says that something is 90s, 
There's a very good chance they're talking about a comic that was released in 1991. It's not an absolute. I'm just saying there's a really good chance. So the purpose of this isn't necessarily to say that, man, the 90s really sucked. Or, man, the 90s were totally awesome. It's like anything, guys. There were good comics and there were bad comics. And so, the way it's worked out in this miniseries, what I've tried to do is sort of alternate between DC and Marvel. Because, guys, when push comes to shove, I'm a DC guy. You know, that's home base for me. Always has been, always will be, right? And I guess one of the unintended kind of side effects of that is the comics that I talk about on this show tend to be comics that I like the most or comics that I'm the most familiar with or comics that, you know, just, you know, whatever. And what I think sometimes can happen on my show is that I get a little bit of tunnel vision on these sorts of things. I get a little bit myopic and maybe I don't talk about as wide ranging a variety of comics as maybe I could, you know? So Basically, what I'm trying to do here is just kind of broaden my horizons a little bit, and who knows, maybe broaden some of y'all's horizons too, you know, just take you guys along for the ride. Weirder things have happened. So, anyway, I've had a real blast doing this series, and fortunately or unfortunately, today's episode is going to be the last entry in the January 1991 mega series. So, for those of you who have enjoyed it, well, this is the end. For those of you who couldn't wait for it to be over, hope is on the way, guys. So, anyway. Now, as it goes for today, what I'm going to be talking about is Spider-Man number six. And this is something that I've actually... I've been trying to find a way to work. Maybe not specifically Spider-Man number six, but something from this general vintage trying to find a way to work this into my show for reasons that will become apparent later on. But this is something I've wanted to do for quite a while now, so I don't know. I'm kind of excited about it, to tell you the truth. So I guess without further ado, this is Spider-Man number six. Cover date, obviously, is January 1991. On sale date is November the 20th, 1990. Cover price is a buck seventy-five. Artist is Todd McFarlane. Writer is Todd, uh, Todd McFarlane. Letterer is Rick Parker. Colorist is Gregory Wright. Editor is Jim Salakrup. Story title is Masks, Part 1. And I guess in brief, the well, or perhaps not so brief, the plot synopsis is as follows. We start off in an abandoned warehouse where there are screams and pleas about someone's face. We see that it's the Hobgoblin, and he appears to be taking off his mask. His face is not normal in any way whatsoever, though. It looks kind of sort of like the mask he just took off, except maybe a tiny little bit a hell of a lot more demonic. Hobgoblin, it turns out, has kidnapped over 20-some-odd people and is holding them in a slime-like prison. And for those of you who are having a hard time visualizing this, just think of Aliens, the movie Aliens. Anyway, apparently he wants to help eliminate their lies, but they don't listen. These people just keep screaming on and on about how scary looking a Hobgoblin really is. Hobgoblin keeps saying he wants to help and ask the people why they continue to curse him. 
A woman with her child nearby says they haven't actually said a word. Hobby calls her a liar and demands that she look him in the eye and say that. The woman refuses and keeps her head down. Hobgoblin gets angry over that and yells that she's being controlled by the devil and she's too blind to see the truth. The woman denies saying, really, again, anything at all, and I guess having been fed up with her crap, or having gotten fed up with her crap, Hobgoblin punches her right in the face inside the slime prison that's, that's holding her, and there she suffocates to death. He then, I shit you not, he then prays for her and says that he hopes God will forgive her. Her child asks what just happened to his mom. Hobgoblin says that she's gone on to a better place and is kind of amazed that the boy isn't screaming or running away or turning away, for that, for that matter, from his ugly kisser. He takes the boy out of his slime prison and hugs him. From there, we cut away from Hobgoblin hugging the boy, which sounds kind of suggestive when you say it that way. From there, we cut away from Hobgoblin hugging the boy to Peter and MJ hugging each other in bed, and then it's like the camera, so to speak, pans over Peter and MJ's bedroom to the Spider-Man costume, which is laying on the floor. And then from there, a close-up of the spider, the spider symbol on the outfit's chest. And from there, we cut back to a spider in a Brooklyn alley. Well done, Todd McFarlane. Anyway, we see the ever-happy Ghost Rider holding a priest by the feet over the roof of a building. Ghost Rider's threatening to kill him because the priest was making kitty porn. The priest tries to rationalize all this by saying he was fulfilling their wants and needs. They were worthless and homeless, and his only sin really is that he cared. Ghost Rider doesn't exactly like that answer very much, so he angrily screams that he stole their innocence, and that's not a crime that he, meaning Ghost Rider, can forgive. He then drops the priest off the building, but not before... He, but actually, I mean rephrase that. But just before the priest hits the ground, he's caught by none other than Ghost Rider himself. Instead of killing the priest, he decides to give him the penance stare. Then, Ghost Rider rides off in the night, leaving behind a very scared priest. Elsewhere, Hobgoblin is still asking why his prisoners are cursing him. Question I think we all have, actually. He tells the boy that he used to be a mercenary, but now he aspires to be something better. He decides to take the boy and leave just before he throws a lit pumpkin bomb inside the warehouse, destroying it more or less completely. This is to show what happens to sinners. And from there, we cut to uh, Peter, who's trying to sneak out of the house, but as usual, MJ stops him just before he leaves. He sweet-talks his wife and then quickly leaves the house. He hears about the bombing and whatnot from the police, and all of the news reports that are coming on the TV, all of which are reporting that this is the work of the Hobgoblin. And so, because of that, Spider-Man swings into action and starts looking, looking to street thugs to give him answers. He finally uh, comes across a junkie who's ready to snort some coke, and so Spider-Man steals the drugs off of the guy and webs him to the wall. He threatens uh, to drop the cocaine down the sewer pipe, Unless he gets some answers here. He wants to find out where exactly the Hobgoblin's hiding out. And I guess this is Spider-Man's lucky day because he finds the only cokehead in the entire city who seems to know where the Hobgoblin is hiding out. So, good for him, I guess. 
He eventually gets the answers, and then he tells the drug addict that the webbing is going to dissolve in about an hour or two, and I guess this is supposed to be classic Spidey humor. He leaves the coke just out of reach of the druggie on a windy night. Anyway, it seems that the ghostwriters also caught an ear of uh, Hobgoblin's latest misdeeds, too, because he's trying to get answers to the Hobgoblin's whereabouts as well. Ghost Rider has to bust a few heads, he gets his information, and then he's on his way. Elsewhere, Hobby tells the child that he's happy that he's converted to the side of good, I'm using that in quotation marks, good, quote unquote, and that he, meaning the Hobgoblin, was once in sin himself and always held on to the negative things in life until he started hearing the voices in his head. These voices in his head, you understand, are trying to lead him on a righteous path. He's dealt with them one by one until he conquered them all. And now the little boy has shown him that there still is hope for the entire world after all. The boy agrees. So Hobby tells him that he's ready to redeem his soul and once again, and once complete, the devil himself won't be able to touch him either. Just as all that gets said and done, Spider-Man busts through the wall and says just how sick Hobgoblin really is for all the things that he's done and how he uses innocent people to get at him, meaning Spider-Man, because Spider-Man's assumption in all this is that the Hobgoblin only set off that firebomb to get Spider-Man's attention. So it might be fair to say Spidey doesn't really understand what's going on here. Anyway, Hobgoblin says that Spider-Man is the devil and he has come to challenge his new allegiance. Flabbergasted by what Hobgoblin's just said, Spider-Man picks up the child and, and tells him to stay back, which isn't such a good move because Hobgoblin chooses that moment to go totally schizo and lobs a bunch of pop, uh, pumpkin bombs in their direction. Spidey's really pissed now and jumps at the Hobgoblin with punches and uh, kicks and he's he's just righteously pissed off. He's screaming about how Hobgoblin has he, he nearly killed that innocent child. Hobgoblin uses his laser gloves. Seriously, guys, how awesome are laser gloves? Hobgoblin uses his laser gloves and yells at Spidey to repent of his sins over and over again. Spidey is now really confused and he has no idea what's possessed Hobgoblin to become some kind of maniacal, holier-than-thou-art type of person. Just then, the little boy tries to get the two of them to stop fighting. Spidey looks up to see the boy's face is changing into a face just like the Hobgoblins, which is to say a kind of scary-looking demonic type of face. The boy then says, Don't hurt, Hobgoblin. We're best friends. He loves me. Off in the distance, Ghost Rider is coming. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, guys, if you just heard this plot synopsis and you're thinking to yourself, but Magnus, but Magnus, that doesn't sound very much like a classic Spider-Man story to me. And my answer to that is, you are right. It, I don't know this to be true, but my guess is that Todd McFarlane wanted to do some kind of a supernatural horror type of comic book for a really, really long time. And not really having much of an opportunity to do that, I guess, with any other character. I guess there weren't enough Ghost Rider books coming out at this time. McFarlane's move seemed to be wanting to transform Spider-Man 
from a sort of a wisecracking street level type of smartass superhero character, transform that into more of a uh, kind of gothic horror movie, supernatural horror movie type of milieu, right? Doesn't fucking work. Now, it does need to be said that the writing in this issue, guys, not exactly Shakespeare here. Now, I know, I know, I'm not the first one to say that Todd McFarlane really wasn't such a great writer, but unlike a lot of people, I'm actually willing to look the other way, at least a little bit, on that. Inasmuch as Todd McFarlane, the comic book penciler, by this time, which is to say January of 1991, he probably had hundreds and hundreds of pages, comic book pages, under his belt, right? Todd McFarlane, the writer, he basically had Spider-Man number one through six. That's it. So I guess what I'm saying is it's a little bit unfair to hold Todd McFarlane, the writer, to the same standard as Todd McFarlane, the penciler, right? He's been, I would, I don't know as I'd go so far as to say a master, but he's been a really solid talent up to this point in his career with art. He's still learning the ropes, though, with writing, you know? So, as I say, I'm willing to look the other way on some things. But, guys, changing the tone of what Spider-Man has always been about, you know, basically changing the genre that Spider-Man has always existed in, not cool, you know? And this, to me, is, it's especially egregious because of the fact that, you know, McFarlane was basically given his own Spider-Man title on the heels of his work on... Amazing Spider-Man. Now, for reasons I can't say I fully understand, the David Michelinie run on Spider-Man, it just doesn't have as many admirers as, say, the Roger Stern run. But to me, at least, I mean, what what Michelinie did, you know, maybe it's not as iconic and heavy-hitting as Roger Stern's work on Spider-Man, but it's still pretty fucking memorable. I mean, some really important things happened on David Michelinie's watch, you know? And my point in mentioning all of this is to say that, to me, David Michelinie and Todd McFarlane on Amazing Spider-Man, they did kind of, I would say, almost archetypal Spider-Man type of stories. You know, these are the kinds of stories that Spider-Man needs to be in, you know? Todd McFarlane, he drew those stories for, what was it, like a year or two years or something like that? And what, he still, it's like this whole time he just didn't get it? You know, I mean, I don't really understand how you can draw David Michelinie scripts and think to yourself, man, what this stuff really needs is more supernatural and horror elements. I mean, how do you get there, you know? I don't really know. So, like I say, there are certain aspects of Spider-Man, adjectiveless Spider-Man as a title, that I'm kind of willing to look the other way on, you know? There are certain other things, though, where it's fair and just to call Todd McFarlane out on the carpet a little bit for that stuff and just say, what the fuck were you thinking, dude? You know? No, seriously, what were you thinking? You know? So, anyway, just to take it from the top, though, this is actually a pretty good cover. It's actually a little bit deceptive in some ways because just to look at this cover, you've got Spider-Man, he's duking it out with the Hobgoblin, and the Hobgoblin is lobbing all of these flaming pumpkin bombs at Spidey, and it's just a really neat, fun-looking, dynamic cover. You've got Spidey's webbing, it's going all over the place, and he's in this 
anatomically impossible kind of uh, pose as he's swinging around on his webs and stuff. And I don't know, it's it's just a really neat cover. You know, it's a very busy cover. It's very eye catching. But just to look at it, you'd almost think that this is a bit more of a conventional type of Spider-Man versus the Hobgoblin type of story. And that is not what we get here, not by any means. You know, but you don't really get the flavor of what this story is all about based on anything that you see on the cover, you know? And I guess, you know, there is a little bit of, there is a kind of a literal quality to this cover in that, you know, a scene like more or less along these lines does happen in the story, but I don't know. It just, it's kind of weird that a cover can be literal and yet still a little bit misleading, you know, which is weird. I've only... Uh, that only just occurred to me. So, hmm. Anyway, to get into the story proper, though, um, basically where we start off with this story on page one and really getting into pages two and three is basically the Hobgoblin. He's kidnapped all of these people. And then on pages two and three, you have this big two-page splash where he takes off his mask and you see like this really horrifying demonic face under his mask. It's like, wow, you know, the mask that you were just wearing is nowhere near as scary as your actual face, you know? So not, not, this is not the only time that, that something, how, how best shall I put this? This is not the only instance of, shall we say, Todd McFarlane's future, you know, a little bit of foreshadowing into where Todd McFarlane's career was ultimately going to take him. This is not, the only instance of this and the, that we see in this issue, but my goodness, it's, you can kind of see, you know, the seeds of spawn were really tickling Todd McFarlane's imagination. You know, this two page splash, except for the particulars of it, you know, hobgoblin and whatnot, the big picture of this, I mean, it actually really does remind me of spawn number eight, I think might be number eight, but whichever issue Alan Moore wrote, it's just got all of this hellish, demonic, just really evil-looking imagery on it. And you have uh, Hobgoblin's uh, cape, and it's all uh, beat up and chewed up, and it's just tattered, and it's in pieces in some cases. And he's got the claw fingers going, and he's making even the claw hand with his claw fingers and all of that. And his face is very spawn-like. You know, he has a nose, so I guess there's that. But his face otherwise is very spawn-like. And you can just see that, you know, a lot of the a lot of the elements that would come to define Spawn, those things have been working inside of Todd McFarlane's imagination for a pretty long time. By by the time Spawn as a as a title really got underway. And it's just strange to think that, you know. Spawn was obviously more in line with the the types of comics that McFarlane was wanting to do at this time. And it just it just kind of makes me wonder, you know, whose brilliant idea was it to put him on Spider-Man? You know, a guy whose heart obviously lies in some other type of genre. Why are you doing this? You know, I don't know. So get comfortable with that, guys, because I'm going to be saying that a few more times before this is all over. Anyway. The art, though, I, I will say this for it. This is a pretty substantial upgrade on the art that we got in uh, McFarlane's run on The Amazing Spider-Man, in as much as there's just so much more detail 
uh, to this art. I mean, it's not exactly a modern comic in that respect, but there is still a shit ton of uh, of detail, you know, especially on page uh, on uh, the the page two and three splash. But even going forward, basically anything that has anything to do with with the hobgoblin in this issue, it's I mean, again, it just kind of speaks to the fact that this is where McFarlane's imagination really really was you know the amount of art uh and detail in the art the amount of time he spends with hobgoblin and all this just weirdness that's going on it's just i don't know maybe i maybe i'm projecting a little bit too much meaning onto mcfarland's artistic decisions but it just seemed to me this is where his heart truly was i think when you really come down to it spider-man only pops up on a couple of pages in this issue and for the most part it's really hobgoblin's story in a lot of ways. And I'm using story kind of loosely here. It's not a story, whatever. Anyway, and then uh, you get into, what page? Why? Was this just like a, a trend that, that that goes as far back as the early 90s and I just never realized it that they wouldn't put numbers on these fucking pages? Because this is just, well, whatever. Whatever page it is that Hobgoblin frees the little boy from that little slimy cocoon, the next to last panel on that page, it guys, this could just as easily be Spawn. You know, he's got the cloak and it's going in all these weird, fucked up directions. And it's almost like it's moving and it has a life of its own. It It's all chewed up and it's torn and ripped and it's got holes in it. I mean, guys, this could just as easily be any issue of Spawn that you ever saw, you know? And you can just... I don't know. Maybe I'm just attaching too much significance to this, but I I just can't help thinking that all of these concepts and ideas and tropes that would come to define Spawn were already active in McFarlane's imagination by the time he started on adjectiveless Spider-Man here. So it's interesting, at least to me. I don't know what the rest of you think, but I at least find it interesting. So anyway, moving right along. This next page is, again, I don't know the page number because, God forbid, we put page numbers on these things, but it's basically Hobgoblin hugging the little boy, and then we cut to uh, Peter and MJ's apartment where Peter and MJ are hugging each other or kind of snuggling a bit. And this is one of those things, guys, admittedly, Todd McFarlane does really well. He is very good at the artistic transition because we basically follow ideas, I guess, or themes in the, uh, across these panels. There's the theme of a hug, which takes us from Hobgoblin and the little boy to Peter and MJ's apartment where they're snuggling in bed. The camera just sort of pans around the room and then it uh, sort of zooms in on the spider symbol on Spider-Man's outfit. And the angle at which the camera finally settles on the spider symbol is the starting point of an actual spider on the next page. Um... Just walk, just hanging around, cruising around in in his actual spider web, and that's a uh, transition itself, where the spider is hanging off his spy his spider web to Ghost Rider hanging a a kitty porn. I don't even know what you call it, a kitty porn producer off a building, you know. And this is something that guys, I mean, it's hard to put into words, you know. It's hard to really describe it in a way that's friendly for an audio format, but your mind follows all of these different shifting ideas and themes and perspectives and whatnot, similar visual elements and all of those sorts of things. 
it follows those things so naturally. So again, it's really unfair and unfortunate that so often in this vintage of his career, Todd McFarlane, the writer, was held to the same standard as Todd McFarlane, the penciler, you know, because they really are, obviously they're the same person, but they're at two different stages of, of mastery over their craft. And whatever the dialogue may or may not be lacking or whatever may be lacking perhaps from this issue on the conceptual level or just in terms of tone or what have you, you really can't knock the visuals too much, you know? And I just think that's something we need to be aware of. Anyway, so going on from, from there, what like, like I said a second ago, we basically have Ghost Rider dangling what looks to be a priest off of a building and it becomes pretty clear that he's basically manufacturing uh, child pornography, right? Now, based on not really any one thing, but just sort of the overwhelming, I don't know, I guess viewpoint that seems to be evident in a lot of Todd McFarlane's work, I get the idea that he's not just a non-Christian. He's specifically anti-Christian. I mean, I've gotten the impression on more than one occasion that he just doesn't like Christians. He doesn't like Christianity. I don't know. I mean, it's one thing to just sort of be like an outsider to it and not really comprehend it. Like if you read a lot of, and this may offend people, but I guess the problem with that is I don't care. If you read a lot of, for example, uh, Jews, whenever they write about uh, Christianity, I mean, they typically are writing from such an outsider's perspective. They just don't get it. You know, they don't understand it. And they're absolute outsiders to it. But here's the thing. They're not necessarily, I mean, I don't know, maybe some Jews are rabidly anti-Christian, but it seems like a lot of them, you know, they're confused by Christianity, but they don't, it's not like they're necessarily hostile toward it. But then other times, you know, you read work from other writers Jews or not, who who are kind of anti-Christian. And I just get the idea that Todd McFarlane is one of those guys that's just, he's writing from a very anti-Christian point of view. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But it's just, I, it's not like I've ever read any interviews with a guy where he really talks about that. But I just, I'm at a real loss to think of a time when the subject of religion ever came up in his work. And anything that's even remotely similar to positive terms. Maybe I'm just forgetting something. I don't know. Then again, it's not like I've got an encyclopedic knowledge of Todd McFarlane's work or anything, but fuck it, whatever. Anyway, point is, it just seems like the guy has never done a positive depiction of Christianity or clergy or anything like that. And it just kind of makes me wonder, you know, this, uh, child, uh, uh this, uh, child porn producing priest or some of Hobgoblin's own kind of wackadoo ideas. It just kind of makes me wonder, you know? So anyway, I'm not trying, I mean, look, there's a limit to how much credibility I can have in saying all of that stuff and then saying, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on Todd McFarlane, but I'm really not. I'm just trying to just throw that out there and maybe stimulate some feedback or something like that. If you got something to say about that, let me know. Email me, trentusmagnus at gmail.com, T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S at gmail.com. Just let me know what you think. Anyway, the other thing that's going on here, obviously, is Ghost Rider. He's not a major element of of this issue, but you can't really ignore his participation either, you know? 
And guys, it needs to be said, I'm kind of an outsider to begin with when it comes to Marvel anyway, but I really don't know a whole lot about Ghost Rider. I mean, I know that there is such a character, but that's about it. So I don't know. Anyway, uh, point is, you know, you do get a pretty decent feel of what exactly Ghost Rider is, what he does based on based on these pages here. And so I guess kudos to Todd McFarlane for what I assume is good characterization. I don't really know for sure because, like I say, I've got no real authority when it comes to Ghost Rider, but I assume this is what he's like. So until further notice, kudos to Todd McFarlane. So anyway, from there we get this big, uh, you know, moving ahead a couple of pages, we get this big splash page where this is just weird. I mean, the, the art is great. Don't get me wrong. It's Spider-Man. He's swinging through the air and he's got webbing and it's going all over the place. And it's just really solid McFarlane Spider-Man art, right? Having said that, though, Spidey's monologue on this page or whatever the fuck this is, this is just kind of weird, right? He says, that Mary Jane, what a sport. Someday I'm going to have to divorce her just so I can marry her all over again. And I guess I understand the fact that, yeah, guy loves his wife, but what the fuck? That's a, maybe it's just me. I don't know. I just think that's a kind of a weird thing to say. I'm going to have to divorce her just so I can marry her all over again. I mean, that's, I don't know, whatever. The next kind of weird part though, is uh, he goes on to say, but time to get down to some serious superheroing. If I don't get caught in this webbing first, why do I shoot so much of it anyway? And that's, again, it's kind of just a weird thing for Spider-Man to remark upon to himself. I mean, you know, there are certain flourishes and whatnot that artists bring to the table. And one of Todd McFarlane's flourishes for Spider-Man is he uses a shit ton of webbing and it goes all over the place. You know, it's all over the page and it's all tangled up looking and it's it's everywhere. It's it's and it's just a cool little effect, but it just kind of makes me wonder isn't this one of those things that the story isn't really supposed to comment upon? You know, like, gee, Superman, what a big cape you have, and it flaps so majestically in the wind. Well, yeah, it does, but this isn't really supposed to be remarked upon in the story, is it? Or is it? You know? Uh, anyway, I just, I think that's weird, but um, I don't know. Maybe you disagree. Let me know. Email me. So, anyway, moving right along, we get a little bit more hellish, demonic type of imagery, First with all of these people encased in their slimy aliens cocoons. And then after that, Hobgoblin takes off on his flyer and drops a flaming pumpkin bomb into the building, at which time it explodes up real good. And again, I mean, it's just all of this just held kind of imagery. It's just there for the taking. It's just undeniable, really. So anyway... Getting into a couple of pages later, I mentioned a second ago that a lot of the tropes and uh, whatnot that McFarlane would use to, I think, fairly good effect in Spider- uh, not Spider-Man, in Spawn as a title, you could say that some of those were, they could be found gestating in adjectiveless Spider-Man first. And one of these uh, tropes is this sort of compendium of of uh, different news networks commenting on goings-on in, inside the story. 
In this case, the Hobgoblin's uh, firebombing of that building. And so there's Channel 7, there's CNN, there's just something generically titled Editorial, and then there's Channel 2 News. And this same type of idea was used in uh, Spawn, where you had this Asian uh, host of CNN. I think she may have, I think we were supposed to infer that she's Chinese, but she's just a nameless host of CNN. There was somebody else. CNN, I suppose, was just supposed to be the middle of the road, unbiased journalist, I suppose. And then there was somebody from E! Entertainment News who was who would comment upon the news from a very uh, celebrity type of mindset or entertainment media type of mindset. And then there would be this sort of generic kind of angry, pissed off white man, right wing type of guy. And he was on a, just a virtual cavalcade of different channels. And I think the joke was supposed to be that he gets fired after every news broadcast. So he has to go out and find a new job on some other station and that was used, I think, to really good effect in Spawn. And you can almost see that coming up here. Now, there's not a diversity of voices in and points of view in these news anchors. They're all basically saying variations on the same thing. Whereas in Spawn, you had the sort of middle-of-the-road, straightforward jur broadcast journalism with CNN the just vapid, mindless type of, I guess, Hollywood type of news coverage from um, uh, E! Entertainment News. And then finally, Mr. Uh, Paranoid Right Wing Guy on a variety of different channels. And they're all speaking with very different voices and very different points of view. And you don't really get the different points of view here, but you do get at least the variety of, of voices. You know, it's different characters who are commenting on all this. And... Again, you can just see like the seeds of what would become Spawn, and that's the point. So I think it's really well done here, but it's not as well done as it would be in Spawn. So make of that whatever you will. Anyway, moving right along, we get this really fucked up scene where Spider-Man torments a drug addict. And I just don't think Spider-Man would do this, you know, or maybe it's that this sort of thing isn't appropriate for a Spider-Man comic. I don't know. But... Basically, wouldn't it be better if Spider-Man found somebody who was about to steal a car and then interrogated him? Or if he had to rub elbows with a drug addict, I don't know, maybe drop him off at the police station with evidence of possession. Or if you're feeling a little bit more merciful, uh, leave him webbed up outside of a, of a rehab clinic and just say, dude, you can check in and they'll get you straightened out, you know? fucking whatever, but just leaving him webbed up to a wall while he watches his stash get blown away in the wind. That's just fucked up. I don't think, I don't think I like that very much, you know? I mean, I'm not trying to be overly sensitive about it, I guess. I just, this isn't funny. I guess this is supposed to be a kind of comedic moment, but this isn't funny. I mean, this guy has a very terrible, uh, addiction that is, it's killing him. I mean, whether he knows it or not, it's killing him. And we're supposed to laugh at his stash getting blown away in the breeze. Like, really? That that That's funny? I don't know. I mean, I, look, of all people, maybe I'm not the one to talk because the two substances that I'm addicted to are nicotine and caffeine, and they're both obviously legal. 
nicotine obviously is controlled, but it's nevertheless legal. And so I get to have my substances, whatever, you know, whenever I want, you know, so of all people, maybe I should be the last one to criticize here. I just, I don't think there's anything funny about this. You know, I really don't. So whatever, like I say, maybe I'm just being a little too, little too sensitive here. And I guess speaking of my addictions, uh, stand by, I'm going to take a drag off my vaporizer here. And another. And I'm going to drink uh, some of my Coke, too, because, hey, why not? All right. Now, I guess to get into uh, the, last, uh, the last lap of this story, uh, we basically have... Uh, Ghost Rider tracking the the uh, Hobgoblin himself. And then we cut to a scene with the Hobgoblin, which gets interrupted by Spider-Man, and the fight's on. And this is actually one of those things in the in the story that on the one hand, I know I was just condemning this a second ago, you know, that uh, Hobgoblin is speaking in very uh, religious type of language here. But one of the things that does kind of work for me about this is the fact that I don't like thinking of these types of stories in strictly real-world terms, because I don't think that really works so well in most cases. But when it comes down to, you know, Marvel and DC, of the two of them, Marvel really is supposed to be the world outside your window, you know? It's supposed to be more or less the real world, you know? As much as it can be, considering, you know? And I guess on that basis, it really does stand to reason, at least to me, that somebody who is a superhero or more likely a supervillain, this is the life that they've chosen. It stands to reason that anybody who would make that decision is unstable to begin with, you know? So I guess there's that to consider. But when you start thinking about it, that's just one domino that that's fallen. There are other dominoes that could fall, not least of which is abs, abject freaking psychosis okay and it makes sense to me that somebody maybe hobgoblin maybe not it could be anybody but somebody in somebody else's rogues gallery sooner or later they're gonna go off the deep end i mean if they weren't there already they're gonna go around the twist at some point or another and honestly i mean there's never really been anything that's that's been so salient or memorable or iconic about the Hobgoblin that you're somehow doing something detrimental to the character by making him a nut job. You know, I don't think that that harms the character really at all. I mean, if anything, it gives him a more, more of a unique voice, you know? And so on the one hand, I don't really like the characterization of him as this kind of religious weirdo. On the other hand, though, him as just a psychopath. Yeah. I could kind of see that, you know, that works for me. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't take very much imagination to assume that somebody who would dress up like a goblin to begin with anyway, might sooner or later go totally freaking crackers, right? I can see it. And that's the point. I think, I don't know if, if this idea originated from Todd McFarlane. Now I'm going to err on the side of assumption and just say that it did. 
Todd McFarlane is the guy that came up with this. Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm going to just go ahead and go out on a limb and say that he did. And then say that I think this is actually a really neat idea, you know, and it's one of those ideas that I think it's good unto itself. I can't help thinking, though, that if this had waited until or not actually waited, if it hadn't waited as long as it did, if this had been done, I don't know, sometime after Roger Stern left the title. This might have actually been a little bit more of an original idea. Now, as it stands, what what this does is it, it kind of makes Hobgoblin another costume psychopath, which is, I guess, bad. But on the plus side, it does show a character arc for Hobgoblin. He started off relatively grounded, kind of derivative of the Green Goblin, obviously. And then he went crazier and crazier and crazier. I just kind of like that as a as a character progression, you know? Um, to me, that's a, suce- a successful combination. I like it. So, anyway. And that's basically the end of the issue. Uh, we get this little weird kind of V moment at the end of the story where this kid's face has been partially peeled off and you see what looks like a lizard face underneath it, kind of V style, you know? And that's pretty much the issue's cliffhanger, you know? And... Guys, I'm not going to lie to you. I honestly don't know when, or for that matter, even if, I'm going to come back to this story at some point, just because this didn't really grab me. This, to me, is very close to what a Spider-Man comic book shouldn't be. Or at least it was for a long time, and then the Clone Saga got underway and things took a turn. But nevertheless, for the most part, this, to me, is everything a Spider-Man story shouldn't be. And I... Honestly, don't know. I kind of doubt, to be honest with you, I, I kind of doubt I'm ever going to revisit uh, this story and come back with Spider-Man number seven. I mean, I I guess never say never. I just don't see it happening, you know? So, anyway. But overall, I've really had a lot of fun with this series. It's been, honestly, it's been kind of eye-opening, even for me. I mean, I thought I had a pretty decent bead on what comics were really like back in 1991 and there were instances when I was right but then there were instances where I was wrong too so I mean overall I think this was fun I think this was worth doing and I kind of recommend this to all of you you know just pick a month any month you know um January of 1991 or uh March of 1998 or July of 2009 or fucking October of 1976. I mean, fucking just pick a month, you know, and just kind of read through different titles and just see what was going on in comics at that time. Because, guys, it really is kind of an eye-opening experience when you start moving away from just your favorite titles and getting a broader idea of what else was going on in the world of comics during that time. It, it's kind of educational, to tell you the truth. And I think it could be really beneficial. So I think you guys could have a lot of fun. So, you know, by all means, do whatever you want with this. And in fact, if you want, you you can actually go one better on all of that. Send me an email and just let me know, you know, like, what books did you read? Like, what what discoveries did you make? You know, and all that fun stuff. Just let me know. Like, what reading projects are you guys going through, you know? And uh, who knows, I could be fodder for a future episode of Trinus Magnus Punches for, uh, Reality. And that, I think, is pretty much it for the January 1991 mega series. 
And as it happens, that's also pretty much it for this episode. Now, as uh, to next week, I really don't know for sure what I'm going to be talking about yet. I'm just pretty sure it's going to be awesome. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Rico. Suave. Rico. Suave. Rico. Suave. Rico. Suave. Rico. everybody, Magnus here. At Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But mostly it's comics. And starting in February 2018, I'm launching a mega series that's all about Batman comics. And right now, you're probably saying, but Magnus, but Magnus, does this have anything to do with that new Batman movie that may or may not be coming soon? Why, yes. Yes, it does. I plan to talk about a crapload of Batman comics, and I want you riding along in the Batmobile with me. This is The Caped Crusades, a 24-part mega-series all about Batman comics that have meant a lot to me for a lot of years now. And as I work through all of that, I'll also talk about what I personally consider to be Batman's series finale. All that and more is part of The Caped Crusades, a 24-part Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega-series. Be there in February 2018. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality can be found at twotruefreaks.com as well as iTunes. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it, from 1938 to the present day. From the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years. And if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com
so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy.